For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is The Sovereignty of God. This is part two, The Sovereignty of God, Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. So we're back in the book of Romans. Welcome back to our study of Romans 9 now, where Paul is dealing with an objection concerning unbelieving and apostate Israel. The objection is simply this. If the gospel that Paul proclaims is true and salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone, entirely apart from works of the law, and if the Gentiles, even the Gentiles, are heirs of that promise to Abraham through faith alone in Christ alone, then God has abandoned his people Israel. He has forsaken the covenant promises and God's covenant word to them has failed. It has taken no effect And if God cannot be trusted to keep his promise to Abraham, then how can we be assured that his promises to us won't fail as well? That's the objection. Paul's answer, you have grossly misunderstood the nature of the promise. You don't get it, Paul is saying. God has promised that not just the Jews, but God has promised that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through believing Abraham. And Galatians 3, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know, Paul says, that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Did you catch that? Only those who are of the faith of Abraham are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, Paul says, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel even them to Abraham even then to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then it is only those who are of faith who are blessed with the promises, who are blessed with believing Abraham. Turn with me to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. And I want to give you an example of this misunderstanding, but an example of what God's word actually teaches. Isaiah chapter 45 Verse 22, Isaiah 45, verse 22. The Lord says here in verse 22, through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah, look to me and be saved, all you who are Jews. No. (laughs) Look to me and be saved, all you who keep the law. No. Verse 22, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath, a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. The one who looks to him in faith, Jew and Gentile alike, verse 24, he shall say, say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and I have strength. To him, to God, men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord, and in this way, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. 
Now to the Jews, verse 25, all the descendants of Israel meant all the physical, natural descendants of Israel meant all that that those physical descendants would be justified. That's how they read verse 25. But we know, don't we, there were many Jews of whom God had said they would not enter his rest. There were many Jews who went down alive into the pit. Remember those stories from the Old Testament. So verse 25 could not have meant that all the physical descendants of Israel would be saved. It can't mean that. Ignoring the context of the passage, the Jews failed to consider that the spiritual promises of Abraham would extend beyond the physical seed of Abraham. Do you see? And in the context of the passage, All the descendants of Israel now included all those from the ends of the earth who looked to God in faith. All the descendants of the earth, all those from the ends of the earth who looked to God in faith. Look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. All those, the descendants of Israel, include all those who say, surely in the Lord I have a righteousness and strength. And it is only those who share this faith who are blessed with believing Abraham. And it's in this way, verse 25, that all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Who are those descendants of Israel that God is talking about? Those from the ends of the earth who have looked to him in faith. Those who look to him and say, in the Lord I have righteousness. Do you see? For all, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, Paul would later say. It's in this way that all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Back in Romans chapter 9. In answer to the objection that God has abandoned his promise to Israel, it's promises like this, texts like this that Paul has in mind when he says, no, may it never be. God has not abandoned his word. God has not abandoned the covenant. God has not abandoned his people. Why? Verse 6, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Not all of physical and ethnic Israel exercised the faith of believing Abraham. Not all of them who were of Israel are of Israel. Nor, Paul says, are they children because they are the natural descendants of Abraham. How are the children defined? Rather, they are children of the promise. And those children of the promise, they are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Even within the physical nation of Israel itself, God makes a distinction between those who are merely of the flesh and those who have been chosen to inherit the promise according to the election of grace. In that election of grace, God has determined that Isaac would be saved rather than Ishmael. In that election of grace, God has determined that Jacob would be saved rather than Esau. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So then, Paul concludes, those who are the children of the flesh or merely children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but rather the children of the promise, the children of that election of grace. Those are the children of the covenant. So that, And that's for the purpose that God's own purpose according to election might stand as the determining factor. Therefore, God's election of individuals to salvation is an unconditional election. It has nothing to do with them per se. It was, in the words of Paul, before 
they were born before they had done anything good or evil. That destroys the argument that God elects on the basis of a foreseen faith. Do you see? The point that Paul is making is that God determines with no distinction between them on the basis of no distinguishing factor inherent to them. And so God doesn't elect on the basis of a foreseen faith or anything to do with man. It is strictly the sovereign freedom of God to determine. Now that's when Paul's objector would stand from his seat in protest and say, that's not fair. (laughs) And he would charge God with unrighteousness. Now the reason, the reason for that charge of unrighteousness then is this. They would say that if God is going to make a distinction between people, elect one and not another, then God has to do that based on who they are or what they've done. God has to make his determination based on something to do with them, right? There's got to be a reason in them for his choice between them. Especially in this case, right? Because God himself has made a a covenantal distinction between Israel and all the other nations of the earth. A Jew would say, we have our, Abraham is our father. We have the blood of Abraham coursing through our veins. We have the law. Certainly, God's determination would take that into account. So if what you're saying is true then, Paul, and God's determination to show mercy to one and not to another has nothing to do with some distinction between them before they were born, verse 11, and before they had done anything good or evil, then by our definition, God is unjust. And by their definition of divine righteousness, God would be unjust if he made that kind of determination against their definition of unrighteousness. But Paul answers that charge now in the strongest possible terms. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. In other words, may it never be. Literally, may it never be. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it, God's determination to show mercy, it is not of him who wills, nor is it of him who runs. Neither man's desire nor man's effort has anything to do with the principle by which God has determined to show mercy. So then, what is that principle? (laughs) What is the principle by which God determines to show mercy? If it's not based on any natural distinction between one person and another person, then what is it based on? God freely determines those, he freely determines those upon whom he will show mercy, and God freely determines those upon whom he will have compassion for the glory of his own name. That's the principle at work in Romans chapter 9. Not for anything meritorious in man, but for his own name's sake. God determines. And if you think about that with me, if you meditate on that for a moment, right? In order for our salvation to be entirely of grace, it has to be entirely of God, right? That makes complete sense, doesn't it? And for our salvation, for God's bestowal of mercy to be entirely for the glory of his own name, then it must be exclusively determined by God for his own sake. Do you see? 
not based on anything inherent or any natural distinction to be found within men, fallen men in particular. Now, in the context of Paul's quote from Exodus 33 then, Moses asks God to show him his own, show him his glory. Remember that from last week. God says to Moses, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. All my goodness. I will proclaim my name before you. And here, this is in keeping with God's name. A proclamation of God's name is this. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's the declaration, the proclamation of the glory of God's name. In other words, God preserves and God displays the glory of his own name in the exercise of his sovereign freedom to show mercy and to show compassion, right? I want to say that again. God preserves, God displays the glory of his own name in the exercise of his sovereign freedom to show mercy and to have compassion. And that's in keeping with God's righteousness. God's righteousness, rather than consisting in his own conformity to a man-made standard outside of himself, right? God, you got to act this way if you're going to be righteous, right? Instead of conforming, his own conformity to a standard outside of himself, God's righteousness consists in this. It consists in his uncompromising commitment to always and exclusively act for the glory of his own name. To act for the glory of God's own name is righteous. That means the definition of unrighteousness is to act in a way that is contrary to the glory of God's own name. Unrighteousness would be any action that does not terminate upon the glory of God's own name. Do you see? Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? May it never be. God forbid. God always acts in accord with his own nature and being for his own glory. And that is most gloriously displayed in his own sovereign freedom to elect from the mass of undeserving sinners a people upon whom he will freely show mercy. Not for anything meritorious found within them, but solely to the praise of his mercy, solely to the praise of his glory, solely to the praise of his name. To act in accord with God's own nature and being is the very definition of righteousness. God himself is the very definition of righteousness, particularly when it comes to the deliverance of his people through faith in his son. Listen to this from Psalm 31, right? One example from Psalm 31. Okay, we're gonna give more than one example. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Now, hear what David is saying. David is pleading with God for God to deliver undeserving David, undeserving David, for God to deliver him according to his righteousness. Now, even at the time of the Reformation, Luther was petrified, he was terrified by that concept, that thought of God's righteousness. How can a sinful man be right with a holy God? Right? Here, David is pleading for God in his righteousness to deliver undeserving David. He says, verse 2, Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, for the glory of your own name, God, lead me and guide me. You think about what David is praying there. 
Pull me out of the net, which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. In your hand, I commit my spirit. In other words, I am looking to you in faith, God. You have redeemed me, O Lord God, of truth, of righteousness. In other words, displaying sovereign freedom in showing mercy to David is for the glory of God's own name. David has put his trust in God. He is uh, from the ends of the earth, as it were, who put his faith and trust in the God of the universe. And delivering David for his own name is righteous. God's name isn't glorified only in retributive justice, is it? God's name isn't glorified only in that justice poured out upon the wicked. God's name is glorified in the free and sovereign manifestation of his grace and his mercy on the undeserving. That salvation, that deliverance is for the glory of God's own name. And in that sense, it is righteous. It's not for anything distinguishing, any distinguishing factor to be found within man. In all that, God is righteous. Psalm 143, verse nine. David again, deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. In you I take shelter. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. Revive me, God, for the glory of your name. You're my redeemer. You're the one in whom I've placed my trust. Revive me, Lord. Restore me. Save me. Deliver me for your name's sake. For your righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. Do you see the connection? Between God's deliverance, God's salvation, and God's righteousness, God's name, the glory of his name. In other words, the appeal to God, for God to act for his name's sake, is an appeal to God that he would uphold his righteousness in showing mercy to David. David, who has looked to him for salvation. Verse 12, David says, In your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul, for I am your servant. Amen. Let me give you an example of this from the Old Testament. Turn with me to Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. It's important we have this point established. We're going to see another example of it back in Romans chapter 9 in a moment. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, Daniel recognizes in the prophecy of Jeremiah that the time of their exile is coming to an end. The 70 years of their captivity is being Wrapping up. (laughs) And so Daniel, knowing this, Daniel appeals to God. Daniel appeals to God because God owes them mercy. Is that that how it works? (laughs) Daniel appeals to God because they've done their time, God. And that time, no. (laughs) Daniel appeals to God to act in accord with God's own righteousness to act for the sake of God's own name in delivering Israel, for God's own glory. So Daniel begins by acknowledging that they don't deserve it. In other words, there's nothing that is distinguishing Israel right now that would merit God's mercy. In that case, it wouldn't be mercy, would it? It wouldn't be grace. There's nothing about Israel that would commend them to God. The opposite is in fact true. So what does Daniel have to plead with God about? For the glory of his own name, for the sake of his own righteousness, because God had made covenant promises. Verse 3, so Daniel says, I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. 
And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled. Even by departing from your precepts and your judgments, we don't deserve it. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face as it is this day. Daniel, Daniel knows that if God's punishment of Israel is for the glory of his own name, displaying his own faithfulness to the covenant curses, then Daniel also knows that God will be faithful to forgive the repentant, displaying mercy as he has promised in faithfulness to the covenant blessing. Daniel knows this. And so Daniel pleads for the glory of God's own name. Daniel pleads the righteousness of God for God to deliver them as God has said that he would. So Daniel appeals to God to act in righteousness for the glory of his own name. Not because they deserve it, but because God is faithful. Verse 16, then, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, not only your righteousness in pouring out your justice, which he has done to Israel, but now your righteousness in pouring out your mercy. I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Verse 17, now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your serpent, your servant and his supplications for the Lord's sake. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and, your, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city, which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, because, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. What is Daniel praying? Lord, for the glory of your name, deliver your people. For your own glory, for your own sake, not for our sakes. We don't deserve it. But for the sake of your name, deliver us, I pray. The righteousness of God, the righteous acts of God, consists in his own uncompromising commitment to act for the glory and honor of his own name. And the name of God, the glory of God, consists in his own sovereign freedom a freedom from any constraints placed upon the exercise or the expressions of his mercy, a freedom from any claim of man upon the expressions of his mercy. One commentator said this. He said, God must always act out of a full allegiance to the infinite value of his own glorious and sovereign freedom. And therein, consists his unimpeachable righteousness and therein does the contrite heart who flees to him for refuge find hope. In the promise of the new covenant, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake. Anyone who would flee to God for mercy, anyone who would turn to Jesus Christ in faith, 
does so on the basis of God's own glory, to his own glory, to the praise of his grace, to the praise of his mercy. God acts in mercy and sovereign freedom for the glory of his own name. And in that, brothers and sisters, not in ourselves, but in that we can have hope. We can have hope. There are those who have this, this fatalistic perspective on God's salvation when they come to understand these truths and they think to themselves, I remember witnessing to a guy right over here, lives in this neighborhood right over here, knocked on his door, started talking to him about the Lord. He understood passages like this to some degree. It was the degree of his lack of understanding that was causing him trouble. And he said to me, if God's going to save me, he can do it right here on my living room couch. I don't need to do anything. He doesn't need me to do anything. And fatalism, this fatalistic look or perspective of God's salvation. Because God acts in mercy for the glory of his own name, and because God delights in showing mercy for the glory of his own name, and because God lavishes mercy upon those who flee to him for the glory of his own name, the one who flees to him in repentant faith in Christ can have hope that God will turn and be merciful to him. It's in God that we find hope, not within ourselves. Back in Romans chapter 9, When Paul explained in Romans chapter 9 that God chose Jacob over Esau apart from any distinguishing factor to be found in them but simply on the basis of God's free and sovereign choice, his objector said that wasn't fair. Verse 14. And that would call the righteousness of God into question. Now Paul flatly denies that objection and he quotes Exodus 33, 19 in support of his denial. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, Exodus 33, 19, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. From the context of that quote, God's righteousness consists in his own uncompromising commitment to act for the honor and glory of his name. And since the glory of his name consists in his own sovereign freedom to both give and withhold mercy from whomever he wills, There is no unrighteousness with God. Do you see how Paul answers that objection? And he answers the objection from the context of Exodus chapter 33. That's why when Paul quotes a passage like that, it's not merely the words of the quote that are important. It's the context that the quote comes from. And we've got to understand that context to understand what Paul is saying, okay? In fact, now, to uphold the honor and glory of his name alone, God must fulfill his own electing purpose apart from man's willing and running, apart from any constraints originating outside of his own sovereign will. Therefore, Paul concludes, it is not of him who works, but rather of him who calls. God's determination to show mercy is not according to him who wills. God's determination to show mercy is not according to or in response to him who runs. God's determination to show mercy originates entirely within the infinite heart and mind of God alone. Before anyone was ever born, before they had ever done anything good or evil, before ever they had believed, God elected his own to the praise of the glory of his own name. Paul is not wrong about justification by faith alone in Christ alone. He's not wrong about God's unconditional election of one undeserving sinner over another undeserving sinner. 
God is both free and righteous in that election. Now, in support of that assertion, Paul then adds another example. And this example stretches our understanding of God's sovereign freedom and God's sovereign election. Verse 17. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. Let's look at the context of this Old Testament quote. Scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. God raised up Pharaoh with a purpose. God's purpose, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses is protesting. (laughs) Moses is unwilling to confront Pharaoh, and he's looking for any excuse he can find to get out of the deal. He doesn't want to do it, right? Before God's anger is finally kindled against Moses, God gives one final argument for why Moses should not fear going to Pharaoh. Look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before you, uh, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Verse 11. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute? Who makes the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go. And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Now, God is speaking here primarily of his own power to enable Moses to speak. But notice the extent of God's power. The extent of God's power goes beyond merely enabling Moses to speak. God says his power extends to this, making the mute, making the deaf, the seeing, and the blind. Have not I, the Lord, made them also? Ultimately, we're talking about God, our sovereign God, who has the power to so work that Pharaoh will not hear and will not see, right? That's the extent of God's power. Verse 21, drop down to verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt... See that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand to do. But I, God says, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. The word there is hazak. It means to make something unchanging. To literally grow firm. It's going to make his heart concrete, as it were. Set his heart like concrete. Now, there are several synonyms used for this in the text. If you read through this text of Scripture, there are several synonyms used for that word harden. Uh, many of them translated hardened. But the several synonyms are all used basically, basically to convey the same understanding. There's, sometimes there's a word that's um, used to mean heavy. It's a word that means heavy. Uh, the Lord said to Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, to Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull or fat. Make their heart fat make their ears heavy, and God says to Isaiah, shut their eyes, lest 
they see with their eyes, lest they hear with their ears, lest they understand with their heart and return and be healed. You see what God is doing to Israel, to Judah, under the prophecy of Isaiah, under the prophesying work of Isaiah. He's making their heart heavy, unresponsive, insensible, deadened. He's making their heart hard, entirely opposed to God's prescribed will. Now, Moses understands that this hardening is a work of God. In his very first encounter with Pharaoh, it goes exactly as God said that it would go. And Pharaoh not only refuses to let the people go, Pharaoh also severely increases the burden of their labor. You remember that, right? You're going to make bricks now without straw, okay? Moses understanding this, where does Moses go with his complaint? That Pharaoh is a wicked guy. Now he's going to make us make bricks without straw. No, (laughs) Moses goes to God with his complaint. Look at chapter five, drop down to verse 22. So Moses returned to the Lord and Moses said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. In other words, the scriptures clearly state that God hardened Pharaoh's heart from the very beginning. This is to show that God was at work from the very beginning. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. Chapter 7, verse 2. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And verse 3, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people of the the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart and God says, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. Why? Because his heart is hard. So that I can lay my hand in judgment upon Egypt. And this is the purpose, verse five. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Verse 13, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. Notice the passive tense there. Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. Pharaoh's refusal to heed them is the result of God's hardening. Do you see? And this is all before the first plague. This is all before the first plague. That hardening now has a stated purpose, doesn't it? That God may multiply his signs and wonders in Egypt, that God may lay his hand on on Egypt with great judgments, bring out his people from among them, and so that the Egyptians may know that he is Yahweh. What about those texts that say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart? There are several texts here that say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Doesn't Pharaoh have responsibility in all of this? Absolutely. (laughs) He certainly has responsibility in this. But even Pharaoh, acting of his own volition, only ends up ultimately accomplishing or fulfilling the will of God. Pharaoh acts according to, it's the doctrine of concurrence. Pharaoh acts according to his own volition and all Pharaoh ends up doing is accomplishing the will of God. Pharaoh certainly has responsibility. We're gonna see again that responsibility exemplified in the very next objection. Very next objection in Romans chapter nine is that why does God still find fault? 
Why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? We'll find that out, Lord willing, next week. All right. Under the plague of frogs then, turn to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 13. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his own heart and did not heed them, what? As the Lord had said. The intent, brothers and sisters, the intent of adding that statement, as the Lord had said, the intent of adding that statement is to connect Pharaoh's hard heart, even Pharaoh's own hardening of his own heart, to the determination of God first established in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. Right? It's to connect the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to what the Lord God had said. Pharaoh's heart is hard ultimately because God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. So think with me, Pharaoh hardening his heart and Pharaoh's heart being hardened and God hardening Pharaoh's heart are not three separate events or three separate descriptions, but rather one. God, all in accord with God's initial intent and God's ultimate purpose. Now, that's going to cause some difficulty for Paul's objector. Prompting the question of verse 19 over in Romans 9, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? That's another sermon for another day. Flip the page and look at Exodus 9 now. Exodus 9, verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not heed them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. These are not three separate distinct descriptions. They are one, do you see? And it's here in Exodus 9 that we find Paul's quote in Romans 9. Chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time, I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. What is God doing? God is acting for the glory of his own name. Verse 15. Now, if I'd stretch out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you'd been cut off from the earth. God is saying, I could have cut you off at any point. I could have stretched my hand, snapped my finger, and evaporated you from the face of the earth, right? God has the power to do that. But, verse 16. Indeed, for this very purpose... I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. There's our quote from Romans chapter 9, verse 17. It's interesting that Paul's conclusion in verse 18 is that therefore God um, shows mercy to whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens, right? As a conclusion to this quote, and this quote doesn't speak anything Anything about God's hardening of Pharaoh. There are many other places where God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And we see that's the intention that God raised him up. God raised him up. God hardened him for this purpose, right? To show his power in him. But what does this text say? 
that is the context for Paul's quote in Romans chapter 9. God is acting for the glory of his own name. And in that, God acts in righteousness, okay? God raised up Pharaoh to display his power in him, and God raised up Pharaoh so that the glory of his own name would be declared in all the earth. God accomplishes that righteous purpose through the means of a judicial hardening of Pharaoh's heart, a judgment upon Pharaoh. And here again, we see God acting with sovereign freedom for the glory and honor of his own name. Now remember, remember with me, the righteousness of God consists in his own uncompromising commitment to act for the honor and glory of his own name. That righteousness is not only made manifest in showing mercy to undeserving sinners, that righteousness is now made manifest in God's judgment upon the wicked, namely Pharaoh. Leading Paul then to conclude back in Romans chapter 9, verse 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. On whom he wills he shows mercy. He is free in his sovereign determination to show mercy to those whom he has elected. In whom and whom he wills, he hardens. God demonstrates the same sovereign freedom in determining who it is that he will harden. His decisions are not ultimately determined or conditioned upon man's willing or running, but rather his decisions are conditioned upon God's own purpose according to election. I realize, I recognize that for many, this is where things get uncomfortable. <laughs> they get uncomfortable. Why do they get uncomfortable? Because of our own thoughts that constrain or restrain God's own freedom to act. What is Paul clearly saying in the text? God, listen, God chose to love Jacob and God chose to hate Esau before they were born, not on the basis of any good or evil done by them. Is that what the text says? And this is the word of the living God who is sovereign and free to act for the glory of his own name, not arbitrarily, but according to his will, according to his purpose, according to his election, according to his determination, in his own infinite mind, God acts for the glory of his own name. Apart from any ground in man's willing or running, but rather to accomplish his own purpose according to election. His freedom to show mercy is paralleled by his freedom to harden. That's how Paul sets it up in the text. We can't take it any other way. There's a parallel that's being established. Paul sets up the parallel. His freedom to show mercy is paralleled by his freedom to harden. Now, what is Paul doing? Paul is doubling down on God's sovereign freedom to act for the honor and glory of his own name without constraining God's will or God's determination or God's decision to any factor outside of himself, particularly any factor inherent to the nature of man, both in showing mercy to undeserving sinners 
and in judicially hardening those who are left in their sin to perish. We've got to remind ourselves that if God acted in fairness, we would all be in hell. And why is that? Because we are all undeserving sinners. So for God to act in accord with his own free and sovereign electing will for the glory of his own name is to show mercy, is to show forgiveness, to show compassion. And God shows mercy, God shows compassion on whomever he wills without any consideration to anything inherent in man. And in that case, it's for the glory of his own name and whom he wills, he hardens. So I'll ask you then, I'll ask you this question. In consideration of what Paul is clearly asserting in this text, does the, the Bible teach double predestination? Yes, it does. God chooses. God determines. Therefore, election is both predestination and reprobation. And the principle at the heart of the issue is God's sovereign freedom to act as he wills. The exercise of God's sovereign freedom in mercy and the exercise of his sovereign freedom in hardening is apart from any constraining factor inherent to man and is the means by which he declares the glory of his own name. God is not unrighteous. This is the divine prerogative. And this is at the heart of what it means to be the almighty and the glorious God. We'll see more of this as we work through the text, um, especially this particular section, Romans 9 through 11. And the issues involved will become even clearer. In a clarifying statement, look at Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 in a clarifying statement, Paul says this in Romans chapter 11, verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. The word used there literally means hardened. Literally means hardened. The rest were hardened. The elect have obtained the rest were hardened, just as it is written. Verse 8, God has given them a spirit of stupor. Oftentimes people, because of these um, unbiblical sensibilities that we often have, prideful man doesn't like to think about God acting in this way, right? But this is a judicial act of God. Does God or does God not judge the wicked? He judges the wicked. How does he judge them? He sends them to hell, for one, but he judges them in this life. The wrath of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Already presently being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. God's wrath being revealed in judgment. How does God judge? God judges in this way, partially. This is one of the ways in which God judges. You know, look at the TV today. Like a commercial popped up the other day. And it's, um, the name of the website, if I remember correctly, is Heaven or Not. They can't even bring themselves to use the word hell. <laughs> are you going to heaven or are you going to not heaven? <laughs> does God judge the wicked or doesn't he? For the glory of his own name, God judicially judges the wicked. And this is one of the ways in which he, he does that. 
Israel has not obtained what it seeks. The elect have obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, verse 8, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap. Let them fall into the hole they've dug for themselves, right? A stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see and bow down their back always. He who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed, Paul says. God is free to judicially act for the glory of his own name. And he does so in this very way. We see that in those whom he hardens. He doesn't do so arbitrarily. He does so for the glory of his own name. Doesn't do so arbitrarily. He does so in accord with his own purposes according to election. What are the implications of this? What are the implications of this? At the time we have, I want you to consider three with me quickly. First, first implication of this truth is that we, the people of God, should love and honor and glory in the name of our almighty God. We should love the honor and glory of his name. Esteem the glory of God above all things. Everything that terminates upon his glory is good and is righteous. Everything that is contrary to the glory of his own name is unrighteous and evil and wicked. We should love the glory of God's own name, especially especially as it has been displayed and manifest in the salvation of undeserving sinners like you and I. While we were yet ungodly, Christ died for us. Second, we should hope in the glory of his name. If God always acts with uncompromising commitment to the glory of his own name, and that commitment involves sovereign freedom to show mercy without any constraint imposed upon God by the depths of your sin against him, therein does the contrite heart who flees to him for refuge find hope. If his sovereign freedom to bestow mercy, if that sovereign freedom to lavish mercy and grace upon undeserving sinners is not constrained by the depths of your own sin against him, is there any sin which God cannot forgive in that sense? If your own sin doesn't constrain him, then it's in that that the repentant, the contrite, the faith-filled, trusting heart of the believer flees to him to find refuge and hope. Turn to Christ in faith. Amen? The Lord delights in mercy. He abounds in grace. Flee to him for mercy and grace. Third, we should do all those things that uphold the glory of his name. We should only act and only live, only do those things that uphold the glory of his name. Do that which accords with a complete devotion to maintain the honor of God's name and to display the glory of God's name. Listen to Psalm 5, verse 11. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them rejoice. Let them ever shout 
for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you, for you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. You will favor him. You will surround him as with a shield. You see how acting for the name of God, those who love his name are the righteous who are blessed by God. Love his name. Psalm 23, right? He leads me in paths of righteousness for what? His name's sake. So what are we to do then, brothers and sisters? Pursue righteousness. (laughs) Pursue the honor. Pursue the glory of God's name. Do those things. Live in such a way that tends to the glory and honor of God's name. Don't bring any reproach on the name of God. Don't bring any reproach on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To act righteously, to pursue righteousness, is to act out of love for God's name, to, be act, to act out of love for God's honor, to be thoroughly and completely God-centric, to act out of a desire that his name would be magnified. So pursue righteousness then, amen? Pursue righteousness. This is in accord with what it means to fear God, to live in the fear of God. It ultimately terminates upon the honor and glory of God. Brothers and sisters, we should love the honor and glory of his name. We should hope in the glory of his name. Sinners, if you've not turned to trust Christ in faith alone, to put all your faith and trust in him, then flee to Christ for refuge, for the glory of God's own name, right? Flee to him. He delights in mercy. And then we should do all those things that uphold the glory of his name. All glory, honor, and praise to the one who has saved us for the glory of his own name. Amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for your revealed word to us. Thank you, Lord, for making these things known to babes, for explaining them to us in our ignorance when often we don't know our right hand from our left, for giving us a a glimpse as it were, into the heavens um, at the glory of your own name, at the purpose behind which you determined to do all things. And Lord, help us to embrace that, to love the glory of your name, to act for the honor and glory of your name, to hope in you for the glory of your own name, for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it be to your everlasting praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.